I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half Half As Well, Well, where we promise Tolkien lore half as much as you should like. Explained half as well as you deserve. Okay, we are moving into The Two Towers, Volume 2. I can't believe we're here already. I know, I can't, I, it, it's amazing to me. I am so proud of us <laughs> for sticking to this. Yeah. Okay, so we had Chapters 1, uh, The Departure of Boromir, all the way through Chapter 5, The White Rider. Mm-hmm. This is not the Shire anymore. Oh, definitely not. This is a full-on epic journey fantasy story. Yeah, I mean, keyword being epic. We have at this point all of our heroes of the Fellowship splitting up. So the story is like taking on a much more massive scope than Mm -hmm. before. Everyone's scattered and this really gives everyone the opportunity to have their own kind of there and back again story. Absolutely. Sadly, we start off with the death of Boromir. Yeah, and I always like the title of this chapter because it's not really a spoiler because we knew Boromir was going to leave anyway and go back to Gondor. Right. Um, but then, yeah, it's... Uh, it's actually yeah. a bigger departure than him exactly, just yeah. going to Menace Tirith. The bridge between the Fellowship and the Two Towers, or, you know, book two and book three, I view it as an anti-cliffhanger because we end the Fellowship on Frodo and Sam setting off after Frodo's had this real meditative moment up on the mountain, which we talked a lot about last week. Mm -hmm. Um, And then as soon as Two Towers begins, it is just action. Um, And it's almost uh, anticlimactic in in a sense because Aragorn realizes, oh my gosh, like the orcs are here, I've got to go. And runs down, and that's where all the excitement happens. And well, the battle's over. The we're, battle's we're over. We're following this from Aragorn's point of view. Absolutely. And he wasn't there. Yeah. Everyone else was, but he wasn't. And so, um, yeah, it's definitely a really interesting story choice. And I do think it's worth mentioning that, you know, Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings as one giant epic novel, and it wasn't really until he was thinking about publishing it that his publishers were like, Hell no, you're not publishing this giant <laughs> book. Um, and you need to break this up. Yeah. And so Tolkien always remarked that he thought the books were broken up fairly arbitrarily. Interesting. Actually. Yeah. Um, so it is interesting that it ends with the breaking of the fellowship. I do think that was a good point to end it. But, you know, it's not like, oh, there was this big climactic battle at the end of the book. Um, th- I mean, there was. It just, we don't really see it. The story just kind of continues with Aragorn looking for Frodo. Yeah, it, it's actually, it's very unique, you know, mm-hmm. as as much as I think that these books are sort of an archetype of fantasy, of the modern fantasy genre, the way they're split up, the way the story is split up is just absolutely not how modern fantasy fiction functions. Yeah, <laughs> like no, I know. It's, it's really a unique book. Yeah. And also, I've noticed, I think a lot of people stumble with The Lord of the Rings because it's goes so much into the day-to-day of, like, setting up camp and, like, the journey and stuff. And I think we've talked about that a little bit before. But Mm -hmm. here I think it's really cool with the Fellowship kind of breaking up because now we get to see, like, on this day, 
what were these other heroes doing on right. that day? It's so meticulously laid out yeah. and broken up that I think this is now where this starts to pay off a little bit and really kind of give you a lot to dive into. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, setting up camp and the intricacies of the landscape aren't necessarily as important when everyone's all together. <laughs> yeah. But it, it becomes very interesting um, as we'll see in, in a few chapters when they are following each other. So we, we lose Boromir. Uh, he confides in Aragorn in his dying breaths that he is the reason that Frodo left. And, and yeah, that he tried to take the ring. Yeah, exactly. Um, and Aragorn holds this secret. Yeah. Boromir feels very guilty about what he tried to do. And, you know, he says, I have failed. And... Aragorn tries to comfort him and say, you know, you've you've killed many and um, you know, as we know, he he fell defending the hobbits. So, um, you know, he did die a heroic death. Mm-hmm. He really escaped dying as a corrupted man. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which is, you know, a, a pretty important point when I think we're considering the character of Boromir. And in conjunction with his earlier heroic deeds, you know, I mean, I think it's safe to say he's definitely a heroic <laughs> Character. Oh yeah. Um yeah. it just um he you know he stumbled at that part. Yeah, in a lot of ways, I mean in a <laughs> if I pull myself completely out of the experience of the characters of the book and just look at what's what purpose he serves literarily, mm-hmm. um he's like a trial case of the power of the ring. He exists in this story that so that we can see a character that we know and we've become fond of fall to the darkness right we have like just a series of throughout the books um of these interactions of frodo in the ring with other people who are tempted by it and for the most part people either kind of pass this test or you know at the very least it doesn't corrupt them totally to the point it did with boromir but boromir is like what we see when it does yeah um so yeah he definitely serves a very important function in the book after that, they decide to uh, give him a funeral. They're like, we can't leave him like this, which I always found was very uh, interesting because time is very pressing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they have like a lot of like things to solve, like what's up with these uh, orcs with the white hand of Saruman and these other orcs. They still don't know, did like Frodo go with them? Um, later they go by and they, they see that Frodo and his stuff is gone. So they're like, oh, Frodo went to the Eastern Shore with Sam. So Merry and Pippin must be the ones that... Um, were taken by the orcs and yeah and they lay him in his boat with his weapons and everything and they like even comb his hair and get and then they sing this lament as he's you know going over the falls of Rauros. and i mean they really do give him this very classic hero's funeral and yeah. feel that this is a very important thing they have to do before they move on with the journey you know i know we've had plenty of songs up until this point but it was during this song that i was like I can't believe the adaptation of this, the big one, mm-hmm. wasn't more musical or a musical. Um, not that I'm saying, let, yeah, let's take Tolkien to Broadway. But hey, I'm down. You know, I, I think no one can read these books and think that music and songs were unimportant <laughs> to this author. He puts them everywhere. Yeah. It's, and like, Sometimes it's like, oh, that was like a great song. I learned something from it. Sometimes it's not like that at all. It's just to tell you that people in the story are singing songs. Yeah, when they're not singing songs, they're talking about things like these events will be the matter of songs and yeah. days to come. 
it's all about this like epic tradition of singing these epic songs and right and as we've talked about before with the i knew lindalay which we'll talk about so much more in the future once we get to the silmarillion yeah the whole world is yeah, created the whole universe is created through song music. yeah um, um so i i think it's kind of a shame that the peter jackson version didn't include more songs yeah they found some ways to work in some of it but it really is a shame um at the same time i'm glad that people can you know play around with the verses and and make music right you know i I think that's a nice little creative pursuit that fans can can take upon themselves but it it seems like a surprising departure from the original work yeah although with this case in boromir's lament i love uh, that song but i i do kind of understand not having that in the movies because i mean this is like they're kind of making this song up on the spot right. and it's like a it's like it's a very romantic kind of scene that i just don't think plays out as well like in live action well and i think modern audiences wouldn't relate to it at all you know yeah. <laughs> it's a it's definitely not of this time yeah they resolve to chase after mary and pippin and the uh the chase is on and as they make their way down from the hills and to the plains of Rohan, they encounter the riders of Rohan, the Rohirrim. Yeah. Um, something that really struck me about the Rohirrim that we meet in this is that they don't speak like people with orders. Aemir <laughs> is very much his own person, even more so than I would say Haldir uh, when it comes to entering in Lothlorien. Even he was sort of speaking, hey, I'm literally my own person and I have my own opinions about things. And it it just struck me as interesting, um, especially from what we see later of the orcs, which I'll talk about that when we get to it. Yeah. And I mean, I think this is also just, this could be less, you know, how Rohan is, uh, like their government is laid out and more just an indication that Aemir is not happy with the way things are right. in Rohan right now. Right, right. And he's kind of taking it upon himself to defy the rules a little bit. <laughs> and enlist for what some is, help. <laughs> yeah, so for what is good for the country. Right. Because um, he knows that, you know, the influence of Saruman has reached the king. Definitely. And um, he's not happy about it, and he's kind of disobeying orders to ride so far north. And... Um, track down these orcs that he had heard of right and i just think it's it's interesting um that what we've seen of men and elves and hobbits is that they aren't really big rule followers i mean we see the hobbits break rules almost constantly and um these are all of the characters we're supposed to feel related to in the story they are very much free thinkers Um, Even when they do abide by rules, it's because they've all come to their own reckoning with the logic of the rule and not because they respect authority innately. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, the orcs are like a great contrast to that, uh, which I'll talk a little bit about later. But they have an interaction with Eomir. They find out, like you said, that the the king of Rohan um, has succumbed to some amount of influence from Saruman and does not seem to be connected to the reality of what's going on in his country. 
Yeah, and well, as far as like his interaction with the three hunters goes, too. I mean, at first it's a little testy. Yeah, and <laughs> especially. W- and he finds out that they came from Lothlorien. Yeah, and you know, we find out that the you know the men of Rohan are much like most people are in these days, very suspicious of you know elves and especially sure. the Golden Wood and the sorceress there. And Gimli almost immediately is very offended on oh, Lady Galadriel's yeah, behalf. Um, but I want to interject something really quick here. I do have to wonder, like, what has possibly happened to humans when they try to go into Lothlorien? If 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 it is such a widespread thing that not only Boromir, but also Aramir, they both have this kind of suspicion about Lothlorien right. and about Galadriel. It does make me wonder, okay, well, what has happened to humans? Yes, like, of course, you know, maybe... <laughs> If you don't go into that land without bringing evil into it, nothing bad will happen, sure. But that doesn't mean that these humans return or return in the same state. So I I, I wish I knew a little bit more about, like, where are these stories from and, and um, what possibly yeah, has happened. That, that's interesting to think about. I think I've always just thought that, you know, maybe some humans wandered there. But then they were, like, so taken in by the beauty of Lothlorien that they just, like, never came home. That they home. stayed, right. So people exactly. were just, like, they went there and they never came back. So yeah. in Gondor and Rohan, they have these, like, just, like, don't go there. Right. That's also my suspicion is that it's... But those people could be living blissful lives, <laughs> yeah, you know, and, like, lived happily ever yeah, after. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. yeah, I just always found that interesting. But this is really setting up uh, some great stuff between Aemir and Gimli that'll be paid off later. There's sort of this running tension... Uh, between them over his words about the Lady Galadriel that I think pays off in a very hilarious way in Return of the King. Yeah, it's very clear by this point that Gimli is the thorniest of the three and um, he seems to be the one in the entire fellowship who catches the most snags when it comes to meeting new people, um, either because they have suspicions about him or they have suspicions about people who he holds in high respect and esteem. Um, like in this scenario, but something I really like is that Amir is is immediately has a better reaction than Haldir did uh, to sort of Gimli's point of view. Amir says, "Oh, this is just like what everyone I've ever known thinks, and I'd be glad to learn otherwise." Yeah. Oh, he yeah. seems he's, way more. He's way more open, open minded, and uh, yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting that um, dwarves and men are both mortals. Yes. So I think there's like some sort of kinship there that Absolutely. they don't share with elves. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I always thought that was really interesting. And speaking of his, uh, you know, relationships that are blooming between the three hunters, we get uh, a lot of stuff with Aemir and Aragorn, which, as we know, will go on to be a very successful relationship as these two are destined to become the kings of Rohan and Gondor. But here we already have this sort of blooming uh, bromance when Aragorn reveals like his true name and lineage and even Legolas and Gimli stand back and they're just like, whoa, I've never seen you like this before. Right. He like, uh, like, as we've seen other characters like Galadriel and sometimes Gandalf do, he like appears very differently suddenly. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and Aemir is like so kind of convinced by this. Um and he's like, wow, like the heirs of the old kings of Numenor still like walks the earth. Like this, the legends like spring out of the grass. And so, you know, when everyone's like, yeah, we're tracking friends, we're hunting orcs, you know, he believes him. And he's just like, listen, it's the rule of everyone to come back to, you know, 
come before the king who are strangers in this land so like i don't want to have to like force you back so like can you please come because i think you're a true man and stuff uh they eventually reach this compromise where they lend him some horses and aragorn swears like i will come and so amir's men don't really like this they don't really trust this but amir you know he's got a really good feeling about aragorn and um I mean, as we know, he is everything he says he is. And that just really, I think, comes through in that moment when he's, like, revealing himself. Yeah. And then they come up to find the uh, orcs that the riders had slain. And, you know, they had said that they didn't see any hobbits or anything like that. And they're kind of left under the eaves of Fangorn. And the next chapter then kind of takes us back in time a little bit to now see from Merry and Pippin's point of view. Yeah, I really enjoyed all of the time we get to spend with Merry and Pippin here. Um, and I'll just say in the future going forward, any of the Merry and Pippin chapters are probably some of my favorite. Really? Um, yeah, I, I just think it, they're really great characters to follow around. Yeah. And be point of view characters. I mean... Starting with The Hobbit, it was like a story about just this one hobbit. And now we got the story of these four hobbits. Right. And, you know, book four will go into Frodo and Sam's journeys. But as we go forward through The Two Towers and Return of the King, like we have these moments where Pippin and Merry are these POV characters. Yeah. And I don't know. I just before this, we didn't really get a whole lot of them. They were along with the journey. But, you know, they had to balance out a lot of characters in the yeah. Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah. And just like a lot of info dumping, because yeah. <laughs> so they're just kind of there. Like, so the most hey, relevant ha, ha, ha. characters are getting kind of the most yeah. like page time, and Mary and Pippin are kind of there. But now we really get to see them as the main characters of their own story. Yeah, and really get into them as characters, which I really love because they're very endearing. Absolutely, we're introduced to kind of the internal workings of of an orc squadron that's actually made up of several different races of orcs, or. I don't know how to even put it, like, groups, clans. Um, yeah, tribes. Tribes, maybe. yeah. And that's interesting as well, realizing that this sort of call from Saruman and, great, you know, in a greater sense, Sauron for the orcs to join their side is not as easy as it, as it originally may seem from the outside, right? Like, I, I think when your only exposure to orcs are sort of what we've seen so far in the story. Right. It's like, oh, they're just all like a monolith. They all are totally evil. Yeah. <laughs> um, in the exact same way. And I mean, they're all, they all are pretty evil and, mm -hmm. and depraved and very different from our heroes. But um, it's clear that they have very distinct cultures and, right, yeah. and opinions about each other. And they have no interest in really working together. Yeah, and yeah, I just, I love seeing all these different groups of orcs and the differences between them. And I also love hearing them talk about the war and their masters. Yeah. Uh, you know, we can see sometimes they're not all as just, you know, fall in line as we tend to think they are. And right. we'll see this later in The Two Towers with Frodo and Sam. There's another couple characters that we get to follow that are of different orc groups. We right. see their bickering and... um yeah, I love anytime we get a peek into that culture. Yeah, and and as I mentioned before, as much as you are correct, there are some who are willing to disobey. There's still so much so much of their conversation is about orders, about how exactly they're going to follow the orders, how many of them just want to eat the hobbits yeah. right there and not um, bring them to Isengard at all. 
Um, and, but there's this assertion, um, that like, absolutely not like basically the militaristic orcs who, who do have a lot of order and strength and, and experience, um, seem to take the lead. Yeah. And I want to go into like kind of these different groups of orcs and like their different traits and stuff. So we have the ones that we've already seen in the Hobbit and earlier in Moria, the orcs of the Misty Mountains, or as they're typically called goblins. Mm -hmm. And they're a lot smaller of stature. A lot less trained, it seems like less capable in in fights yeah and well and in sunlight too and i mean yeah. they're marching through the day and these guys can't really keep up at all yeah. and so and they're just like hey we just wanted like revenge and to kill and pillage like what are you guys talking about orders they're kind of like masterless almost in yeah. moria and well and if they did serve the balrog the balrog's dead now so right um but then we have the isengard orcs which are, you know, this much more, I think they're described as almost man high. So pretty large for an orc, very sturdy and stout. They're warriors. They're kind of the most brutish of all of them, but they're very loyal to Saruman. As we hear like Treebeard, I think, say in the next chapter, you know, Saruman, I think might be up to breeding orcs and men. Right. And so that's where like his brand of orcs is coming from and probably why they're taller and larger. Right. Um, and they're intelligent, too, and very hardy. Right. The Isengard orcs are led by Ugluk. From Mordor, we have those orcs um, who are led by Grishnak. And what I really like is how Grishnak is described. He's really like sneering. He has an evil voice. Mm-hmm. A higher-pitched evil voice. So instead of this militaristic brute of the Isengard orcs, or the whining diminutive petulant petulant uh misty mountain orcs these are kind of probably the most intelligent and cunning and just kind of slick i've always found these different traits very interesting yeah grishnak feels very to me like of mordor of the land of sauron his master yeah he's very cunning and and is looking at the situation saying what can i get out of this Absolutely. And he's like, okay, okay, look, we'll go along with you for a little bit. Um, but he definitely has his own agenda. Right. And I've just always found their interactions very cool. Absolutely. Um, I think what's great about this chapter is we get to see not only just a little bit more uh, screen time, whatever, book time for Merry and Pippin, but they're really smart and cunning as well. You know, they, they bring yeah. in that classic Bilbo Baggins trickery um of of thinking quickly on their feet and and tricking the people around them yeah and i mean hobbits might be you know kind of stupid sometimes or in and out of their depth yeah, but stubborn but and it, kind of stuck in their ways so when they reach these dangerous situations that seem very hopeless and they're out of options this is when we see hobbits and their true nature kind of shine through and we definitely see that with Mary and Pippin here. Pippin especially, who has so far gotten them into a lot of trouble. Yeah. He's been and, the fuck up. Yeah, the exactly. And, um, but now he's, you know, leaving, he's thinking about the orcs seeing their footprints and being able to run away so that Strider might be able to see it and leaving behind a token. And he even cuts his hands free and hides it so that later on he can help himself and Mary escape. And, we really do start to see this evolution of Pippin here 
Mary was always a lot more capable. Yeah. Um, and, and like knowledgeable and getting yeah. big plans together for all of them and stuff like that. Yeah. And we do see just this difference between Pippin and now and Pippin from earlier. He's even note- noting that, oh, I wish I paid more attention in Rivendell. You know, he's like, he's learning <laughs> yeah. though that, that oh, there is use to this sort of knowledge and right. stuff. And that's just going to continue with him. But they finally escape after the Riders of Rohan show up and Aemir kills Ugluk and they escape into Fangorn Forest. Yep. So that brings us to chapter four, Treebeard. And whereas before Pippin was kind of our lead hero of the chapter, now Mary's like, well, it's my turn to, you know, go on ahead. And, you know, he's used to the old forest and stuff. So Fangorn was actually part of the old forest. They were all the same forest at one point. So Mary feels a lot more comfortable kind of leading here. And they eventually climb up to this high spot to kind of look around and get a lay of the land. And they are standing next to what they think is just this old stump of a tree. But then they hear a voice and are turned around by these huge hands. And they meet Treebeard for the first time. Yeah, I uh, think Treebeard's very interesting. And the Ents in general are are extremely cool. Oh, yeah. um, they, as hobbits, have a lot to learn. And he, as a, an Ent, you know, doesn't even know what they are. At first, he's like, none of the old songs talk about you. And they're like, well, we've been around. You know, hobbits have been around for quite some time. But they're like, people always leave us out. Yeah, they're like, (laughs) no one even knows we really exist. So um, I think that's funny. Again, talking about songs, you know, Treebeard's first response when he's trying to figure out what they are. And they're like, we're not orcs. He's like, well, let me sing the old songs and uh, I'll figure out what you are. Right. And we find out that the elves first awoke the ints by singing to them yeah exactly so that makes a lot of sense <laughs> the old elves always wish to speak to everything is what he says <laughs> yeah which is a really funny i, I think anytime people, <laughs> i don't want to sound like a broken record but anytime people are a little not that that's like a dig at the elves but it is like a little bit like yeah they just you know the old elves you they, know how they are you know how they are <laughs> yeah um which i think is funny they basically just talk to Treebeard. He he tells them a lot about Ents and um, asks about the Ent Wives, which uh, was another very interesting being to learn about, and that there are no more Ents being created because they've lost the Ent Wives. Yeah, and I've always loved Treebeard talking about the Ent Wives and the differences between the Ents. You know, he says that we kind of gave our thoughts to different things. The, right. the ints, the, the males of their race, like, love to just wander in the woods and kind of just be content being among nature. Right. Whereas the ant wives kind of wanted to tame nature yeah. more. And they kind of went down in... gardens. Yeah, they went down from the mountains and the woods into the fields and the valleys and uh, essentially created what it sounds like just agriculture. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. trained mankind. Yeah. Um, so this is, they're sort of like almost these agricultural nature spirits. Yeah, very um, cool. Yeah, yeah, really neat. But then we know that during the war with Sauron in the Second Age, uh, they were separated and they left and the Ents couldn't find them again. Which is really sad for people like Treebeard who was in love with, uh, I think it's Fimbrithil or yeah. Wandlim. Yeah. And yeah, I, I've always found this to be a really tragically sad romance yeah. story i mean next to aragorn i think treebeard's the most romantic character of oh, the book definitely I, I would say you know even without the the loss of the entwives you know not knowing where they are anymore it's already a little bit of a solemn uh melancholic romantic story that 
you know, they, they would only return just to create more entings and, and then go back out and travel and travel and travel for indeterminate amounts of time because it's very clear Treebeard and the other Ents are very old and they experience time in a very different way than, right. especially than the Hobbits. Um, and so already it's like tinged with this like, oh, like always missing, you know, the not being with the person you you love the most dearly. Um, but yes, I, I totally agree. Yeah. So I just wanted to give a little bit of context here with the Ents and their history. And this goes all the way back to literally the creation of the dwarves. As we've talked about a little bit before, uh, elves and men were created by Iluvatar. But one of the Valar, you know, these gods that came to Middle-earth to execute Iluvatar's will, essentially. Aule, who is this blacksmith earth deity, was impatient, waiting for the elves to come. And so he created his own race, the dwarves. And he was allowed to keep them, but he had to put them to sleep until the elves awoke so that they would come after but Ale's wife was Yavanna, who is this very Mother Earth kind of deity of nature. And she was really annoyed with her husband that he had created this race that will likely, like him, have a bunch of forges and they'll need wood <laughs> for it and stuff. And so she's like, these creatures are going to chop down all my trees. Mm-hmm. And so uh, she is given leave to create the Ents to protect her woods. They're kind of were created as this response to dwarves. Mm. So I've always liked like the stuff with Gimli and his axe, uh, talking about like be careful with the trees of Fangorn. Um, and Gimli's like, I'm not here to cut any trees. <laughs> yeah, it's still kind of playing out this marital dispute between these two, this god and this goddess, <laughs> yeah. essentially. Very cool. And then a couple other little things about Treebeard, especially as a character. This little backstory: he was originally created as a villainous character. Early on, when Tolkien knew he wanted Gandalf to be separated from the hobbits at Isengard, Hmm. it was the giant treebeard that held him captive. Oh, wow. And this was very early stages. He just kind of had this idea for this giant called treebeard that lives in this forest. We know, obviously, that changed. And it was Saruman, the traitorous wizard, who held him captive. Right. And to provide a little more context for treebeard as well... um, Specifically, his speaking pattern and all his, like, home and hum was actually based off of Tolkien's friend C.S. Lewis and his, like, <laughs> oratory style, this very booming voice he has. So I've always thought that was kind of like a fun little ribbing at his uh, friend. And I wonder, there's just parts when I'm reading this, I'm like, was this what was inspired by this? Because when the hobbits are telling Treebeard about their journeys, they're like, Treebeard would often interrupt and have them go back in the story or yeah. sometimes he would jump ahead and want to know more about something and yeah. like I, I wonder if that was also just like kind of like oh it has to be <laughs> as Tolkien was telling him let me tell you my story Lord of the Rings and stuff and he's like wait go back to that it's like wait no what's this like where does that end up I right. wonder if like that's kind of based off of his like frustrations with his friend kind of critiquing yeah. his work yeah I think also you know Treebeard multiple times says don't be hasty or like don't don't be in a rush to tell me everything like tell yeah. it slowly and um i have to think that that is a <laughs> a character trait of cs lewis so they are trading stories and once treebeard has heard their whole tale he actually gets enraged you know he 
is like, yeah, I've, I've been kind of aware that Saruman is doing something that is not good and he's, he's killing trees and he's, you know, walked these woods for a long, long time and he's never really given back the type of knowledge that he got from me or anyone else here, um, which I think is a really interesting point to be made just about, uh, like, allegorically... Mm-hmm. As much as Tolkien didn't like allegory, I think what is very clear is there's a uh, a huge point in this tale about not taking too much from the earth and from nature and uh, letting oh, yeah. letting the natural world kind of be as it is or as much as possible. Yeah, and as we know about Saruman, he is greedy for knowledge yes. and power, and so he's not going to share any of right. his own. Right, exactly. He's just hoarding it all for himself. So basically, when Treebeard's discussing this with him, he actually riles himself up and needs to go douse himself with water. Yeah, well, you can see from that that he's already been thinking about this a lot. And this is a very sore subject for him. That he's like, what am I going to do about that (laughs) bastard? Yeah, the hobbits note this. And um, especially after Treebeard decides to call the Entmoot, he calls all of the Ents that he can uh, to come and meet, which in and of itself is a very interesting scene. But what Merry and Pippin say to each other is, you know, it might take a while for them to talk. Like, they're kind of slow, but they only seem slow. There's a side of them that seems very fierce. And we, we saw a little bit of it with Treebeard last night. Yeah. But, you know, they, they could be a real force to, to be, be reckoned with. Like, they are kind of scary. They're huge, giant tree men. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there's there's actually three metaphors I counted that I think really sums up the ends really well in this chapter and also once in the next chapter. Pippin describes them as, you know, they can be like a cow lazily chewing, but then they can also become like an enraged bull that'll charge Charging, you. Charging, yeah. Then later when they're marching, you know, he describes them as like a... Uh, a flood that's been backed up for a long time and now the dam has finally broken. Right. And then in the next chapter, they're described as like an avalanche that is started by the falling of a few small stones. Right. So I really like this kind of like slow buildup. We don't, again, we don't see it, but once like the the big event or the big thing happens like they are just like ready to go. Totally. And they are just this elemental force of nature that... Earlier, I mean, it's like you see a, a tree in the woods. It's just standing there peacefully. But, you know, it's almost like being in the midst of a forest in the middle of a great storm. And, like, you know, branches are fall. I mean, it could be a very scary place. Yeah. And Treebeard, you know, indicates this himself when he, he tells the hobbits, hey, you know, I know it's going to be boring. Like, it's going to take a few days. But the reality is what what is going to take a lot of time is telling the story But once they have the information, they will make like immediate decisions about what to do about it. Right. And that actually reminded me a lot of the Council of Elrond. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like this, everyone's telling their own side of this account. And it's not so much the decision making that takes up a lot of time, but like laying the facts out. Right. Exactly. um, So that they can draw an accurate conclusion. But then once they do, they're like, well, there's only one thing to do. Right. Exactly. Down the (laughs) sorrow. Yeah. And I just want to give a little shout out to Quickbeam here. Um, He's a cutie little ent 
the younger of most of them and uh, he hangs out and sings songs with Merry and Pippin in the woods because yeah. he's already made up his mind that they need to to basically declare war against Saruman. Yeah, I love how he got his name Quickbeam because he answered an elder once before they had finished asking the question, <laughs> yeah. which for an end they were like, whoa, whoa he's quick. Um, and it's said that he laughs whenever the sun pokes out behind a, a cloud or anything yeah, like he's that. Very he's mirthful. very mirthful. Yeah, I, I loved Quickbeam a lot. Yeah, he's interesting. Um, and yep, but... They make their decision all right, and they are the force that we thought they could be, um, and they are just ready yeah. to go. And Saruman really doesn't know what's about to hit him. No, exactly. Yeah. The March of the Ants, I, one thing I really love about this is that Tolkien took a lot of inspiration from Macbeth. To give a little backstory, if, oh, if people aren't familiar with Macbeth, the witches have a prophecy about how Macbeth will be defeated after he has taken over the kingdom. And one of the things that they say is that when Burnham Wood comes to Dunsinane, you'll not be king anymore. Yeah, right. So Tolkien was always very disappointed when at the end of the story, spoiler, it's just a bunch of men kind of carrying branches and trees kind of moving. As camouflage. As camouflage to move. And he was like, oh man, I thought I was going to see like a forest come to life. (laughs) And so he was like, that would have been so much cooler. Let me write that. And I mean, I love just the balls on him to just be like, Shakespeare, he's all right. But like, I'm going to do you one better, Bill. Right. Yeah. So then he like literally so creates, funny. you know, the ants marching to Isengard. Right. And um, I've always thought that was a really uh, neat little bit of inspiration. Absolutely. But then we're going to cut back to the three hunters. Mm-hmm. Um, these chapters have a lot of like going ahead and then jumping back. We, we get to see them continue on their, their path, and they all sort of have a little bit like preternatural skill in tracking. Um, they all sort of add different things to the story of, of what might have happened based on what they're seeing on the trail and, and sensing. And um, they find another Lothlorien leave, which definitely tells them that uh, Merry and Pippin were there. They find the Lumbus bread. <laughs> it's actually they're like wait so someone escaped the orcs cut themselves of their bindings and then just sat down and ate bread well we know it's a freaking hobbit <laughs> yeah and while like while this epic battle is happening right too exactly. and they're which, still on the edge of it exactly which um you know aragorn adds you know i i think actually they were carried here by an orc and then it was slain by the the rohirrim and then they didn't see the hobbits, though, because they still had their elven cloaks, and yeah. and at least one of them is definitely alive. Yeah, and I liked earlier it was Legless kind of doing the deducing about, like, <laughs> oh, well, they sat on the edge of battle and had some food and must have been a hobbit. Yeah. <laughs> and Aragorn's like, well, I think they were hobbits, but, like, I think we can excuse them. They were probably very hungry <laughs> and stuff, but they didn't have their—they must have ran off without their packs and stuff, which— that will indicate you a hobbit. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I love that little uh, commentary from Aragorn and Legolas about hobbit <laughs> nature. <laughs> yeah. Uh, something I thought about during this section was that Aragorn has remarkable hindsight and almost prophetic skill when it comes to looking at clues that have already of things that have already come to pass he is immensely skilled when it comes to putting together a story um and and understanding he's he's like a detective yeah he's like sherlock holmes very very much like sherlock holmes to Mm -hmm. me and 
he's been pretty bad at predicting actual future happenings so mm-hmm. far. You know, I, I think that we can say um, his lack of decisiveness leading up to their split between Menace Tirith or um, Mordor was definitely caused some problems sure. along the way. You know, perhaps everyone should have split up sooner or yeah, just and, just known what was going to happen. And I would think, I don't know if I said this in the last episode, but I was thinking about this. And I do think if Aragorn had decided to go with Boromir to Gondor, Boromir might not have tried to take the ring. Absolutely not. I don't think he would have. I, I think because he, he was at least coming happy. home with something. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. It's, yeah, it's a flaw of Aragorn's that, you know, he does kind of, his indecisiveness does sort of lead to the breaking of the fellowship. And it's it's not to say that it's a, a bumbling indecisiveness. No. He's very concerned about making the right decision um, and doing the right thing uh, just as as Strider, as, you know, the lost heir. You know, all of, all of these different titles and names mm-hmm. clearly weigh down on him a lot. And uh, he takes it very seriously, but that is definitely his undoing in a, in a lot of scenarios yeah and i mean he almost feels like since the breaking of the fellowship he's been cursed with just like making the wrong decision and right. kind of like i hope chasing mary and pippin is the right one because like i've just been fucking up all day right like he was even away from the battle because he when boromir dies because he wanted to go up to the seat of his ancestors and see yeah. what could be seen it's almost like you know he feels like it's his right and he's kind of not looking after the fellowship so much right. as thinking about himself. Yeah. And yeah, this leads to him being away from Bormir when he needed his help. Right. And, and the guilt of that really weighs on him. And um, we see him becoming more decisive in this chapter when Gimli sort of says, maybe we should go somewhere and get food because right now, if we, even if we find the hobbits, what are we going to do? Just sit down beside them and starve? And Aragorn's like, if that's all we can do, like, that's what we're going to do. Yeah. We need to find them. So I, I think this is, we're seeing him grow a lot as a leader and and mm-hmm. realize that he's not going to get through this quest without making hard and fast decisions that he, he sticks to. Yeah. And well, speaking of his evolution as a leader, he's had to be a leader since Gandalf died. Yes. And part of his indecisiveness was very much like, I wonder what Gandalf would have done. Right, right. And so now we get this little chunk of this book with him kind of having to make these decisions and stuff. Just in time, though, for him to have his wish fulfilled and have Gandalf come back and tell them what to do. As always, when things are lost, Gandalf shows up, um, this time reincarnated, um, Mm. returned. um, And he, at first they think he's Saruman. And actually, they were followed by Saruman the evening before. Yeah, they had seen an old man earlier. And they were like, well, who is this? What's this all about? And then the book kind of leads you to think that Oh, that must have been Gandalf. But then Gandalf's like, it wasn't me. It wasn't me, not at all. Um, I think this section is interesting. It's another example of how uh, Tolkien very rarely shows us um, characters who seem good and they end up bad, but he very often shows us us characters that we're supposed to assume are villains and it's revealed they're the the answer to everything in the moment. Yeah, exactly. Like Strider. Yes, exactly. And Gandalf tells them of his battle with the Balrog and how he didn't survive. <laughs> yeah. Um, they both kill each other. Yeah. Um, they go it, deep into the earth, too. Yeah, it's pretty wild. They go, you know, all the way down to, like, the foundations of the earth and then back up to the highest peak of yeah. the Misty Mountains. And, 
I mean, this is an epic, epic battle that, you know, he says that, you know, they were in places deep in the earth where time lost its meaning. And the the things down there are so evil that even Sauron knows nothing of them. Or the other, they're so old. Yeah. Um, now, as we know, Sauron is one of the Maiar that has existed since the beginning of time. But I think this is more of a reference to when he came into the world. Right. Um, because like we said, the Valar and the Maiar came into the world and incarnated themselves in it. But it's possible that these were other evil things that, that could have served Melkor. Maybe they didn't, but they came into the world before he did. Right. It's also made clear that, uh, you know, hey, you don't have to worry too, too much about the hobbits. They are in good hands. Like, um, they're around here and they're, you know, not with the orcs and they're fine. Yeah. Gandalf knows Treebeard and he's, well, he also seems to have more sight now than he totally. did He has before. a lot more power too, just in general. And, and I, yeah. And I mean, I think part of that has to do with this sort of in-between time when he was dead and he was, you know, sent back. Now, we know he is one of the Maiar that serves the Valar, who ultimately serve Iluvatar. And this could have quite possibly been Iluvatar himself sending him back as Gandalf the White. And I, I love the part where he says, like, I remembered much that I had forgotten. And because um, I think it's important to realize that the wizards are these Maiar spirits that are encased in, like, an old man's body right they're they're having the real experience of an old man (laughs) exactly so and they have to essentially inhabit the brain of an old man too so you know a lot of their divine knowledge is limited and buried and buried deep especially they've been around for thousands of years right so i i love that he's sent back now with more renewed purpose uh rediscovered old knowledge and foresight and so he has a greater concept of the larger plan here um, and what the Valar want and what Sauron wants and what Saruman wants. And he even knows something of what truly happened to Boromir. He he says something to Aragorn about how, oh, you, you haven't even told like that real full story to everyone. <laughs> he acknowledges yeah. that there's this secret that, that Aragorn is holding on to. And well, going back to the breaking of the Fellowship, when Frodo was on the seat of Amon Hen and he felt the eye on him, then there was the voice. Right. Now we find out that was Gandalf. Yes. Yeah. And so he was kind of putting forth this power to challenge the eye of Sauron. So his power now is much more far reaching. Yeah. Definitely. And before the wizards were sent here to kind of counsel men into the right direction, but time now is getting very short. Uh, and it's very desperate for the people of Middle Earth. So I think. That kind of explains why the Valar or Iluvatar have allowed Gandalf to reveal more of his true power. Right. Because it's like, we're working on a very short timetable here, and years and years of your counsel has been helpful, but it hasn't quite been enough. Right. So we're sending you back as the White. Yeah. (laughs) And so he lays out, you know, all of this counsel for them about, you know, what Sauron and his motivations are and what Saruman and his motivations are. And one thing he mentions that I don't think I ever really actually picked up on before was we know Saruman was scouring the edge of the battle of the orcs and the Rohirrim. And he thinks that it's possible that these orcs could have had prisoners who maybe even had the ring. And now the riders of Rohan have been here and ridden away back south to the capital. 
it's a possibility that Theoden might have the Ring of Power. And so Saruman is now taking a large part of his force and marching south to Adaras. And Gandalf is like, we need to get there pronto because the people of Gondor are going to need the people of Rohan. Right. And so we can't fight a war on two fronts. <laughs> no. So, um, yeah, we got to book it there ASAP. And, and well, he tells Aragorn also, you know, don't regret your decision because now you're exactly where you needed to be. <laughs> right. And also that overall, the decision to split was exactly the correct one. It needed one. to happen. It needed to happen. Um, Sauron is so busy thinking about who might take the ring and topple him that he can't understand that what they are actually doing is going to destroy the ring. Right. Yeah, I love Gandalf calling him a wise fool. Yeah. Because according to what he thinks is happening, he's making all the right moves. Right. He's going after Minas Tirith. And Sar and Saruman is drawing off help to Rohan, and but he has it all wrong. Right, exactly. His his eye, his sight is not very clear. You know, Sauron's so removed from the story, and he can almost seem like just this entity, and not necessarily a person with his own character traits and stuff. Right. But here, I think we do see this sort of selfish inward thinking where. He's not thinking about the heroes doing anything other than what he would do. In right, that situation. exactly. He's and lost this is... sight of, of what other people are like. <laughs> yeah, and so he, he can't even conceive of, like, not wanting power. Right. And I think this also gives us a little bit of insight into Boromir's plan to take the ring. I mean, it wasn't a bad plan. This is what Sauron, Gandalf says that Sauron thinks would do him the most damage. If it went to Gondor... Yeah. He was afraid of this. Right, absolutely. It's not like he's he's like, oh, you're playing into my plan, exactly. you know, my hands. It's just that that's what he thinks would be the best plan. Um and it's it's not. But Well, I mean, he, I would argue it is the best plan. No, but, but like he he can't even conceive that that people would try to destroy right. it. It's yeah. ridiculous that people would come to Mordor with the ring yeah. and <laughs> destroy it. Yeah, and it makes me think a lot to Gandalf's words at the Council of Elrond talking about, is this despair or folly trying to destroy the ring? And he's like, well, let folly be our cloak. Right. It, this yeah. seems like such a stupid thing to do that Sauron and, you know, as we saw, like, Boromir are like, why would we do this? Right, exactly. Um, but that's kind of the point, is it seems so ridiculous. It just might work and give us the stealth needed to do that. And so now Gandalf is basically reassuring them, everything is according... Everything is proceeding according to plan. Yeah. Um, We're doing good. Although one thing that I love with Gandalf, all his sight, one thing he doesn't know is that Sam went with him. Yeah. And, and he, he, he thinks it's great. <laughs> yeah. He's like, oh my God, that dramatically increases our chances that yeah. Sam went with Frodo. And Frodo's not alone. Yeah. Um, he knows Sam, much like Sam knew earlier, early in the fellowship, he has a part to play. Sam is such a standout character. There's clearly something very different about him. You know, there there are so many times where the ring's magic or, you know, other things do not affect him the same way. He seems, you know, impervious to some of these uh, instances of sorcery and fear and things like that. Yeah, and well, I think it's probably because Sam is maybe the most close to, like, Tom Bombadil and this idea of someone that doesn't desire control over others. Right. So therefore the ring has less power over yeah you. exactly um you know he's like just kind of living that true ideal 
simple gardener's life. Yeah. And, um, and we'll definitely see that play more at the end of this book. Well, I think that just about wraps it up for this week. If you haven't already, follow us on our Twitter at halfaswellpod. Or you can find our website at halfaswellpodcast.com. We have our reading schedule up there. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 6, The King of the Golden Hall, to Chapter 11, The Palantir. And that will bring us to the end of Book 3, correct? Correct. Okay. I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half Half as as well. Well.